0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Audrey Assad is a singer-songwriter, an author, a speaker, and the daughter of a Syrian refugee. She's been nominated for Dove Awards, she's spoken at the Q Ideas Conference, and she once performed at a mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral with Cardinal Timothy Dolan
1: presiding. In the beginning, you hovered over the water You broke an unbroken silence You spoke lies
2: I was raised in a very devout family in a tradition called Plymouth Brethren. It's a really small but global denomination that split off of Anglicanism in 1835. It's famous, though. They don't know it's famous, but it's famous because John Nelson Darby, who started the movement, is credited with being the first person to propagate pre-tribulational rapture theory. Oh, interesting. So we were very, very focused on that kind of thing. Lots of Bible studies of Revelation. We were dispensationalists. So everything that we believed and studied was through that lens. And so... Trying to um, figure out who the beast was and what the mark was. (laughs) At all times. (laughs) (laughs) Got your eyes open. I didn't grow up with praise and worship music or anything because it was a hymns-only tradition. But I had this kind of rebel uncle who liked some of the Jesus freak stuff from the 70s. And he, I think the first... Praise and worship, quote unquote, modern contemporary song I learned was uh, "You've Been Left Behind" by yeah. Larry, Norman. Larry Norman. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sang it with him as a duet at a VBS at a one year, and it was a big, made a big splash. <laughs>
0: We actually have a whole episode of this this season of the podcast about Larry Norman. Really? Yeah, Greg Thornberry just finished writing a book about him. And I just had an hour long conversation with him. I will look forward to that.
2: Was <laughs> Most of us line. can't say that sentence ever <laughs> in our lives. <laughs>
1: There's a pine sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of with everything he sees. From the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hustle leaves and the colors all around. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means is hard to know.
0: From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated Conversations about Faith and Work. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, I talk to Audrey Assad about her journey as an artist and as a believer, about the way those two paths mirror and cross with one another. She talks about making it as a musician in Nashville and about how she held on to faith through some of the darkest seasons of her life. Stay with us.
2: My mom's from the south, my dad's from Syria from Damascus. He was a refugee that came in the 70s, but they kind of had a unique situation because they weren't refugees of war. It was more like an extreme poverty/slash dangerous situation with his family that enabled my grandmother to get refugee status. But yeah, they they came kind of fleeing, I guess just extreme poverty. And she was divorced which is unusual at that time. But her ex-husband was a gambler, an addict, somewhat abusive, and he was threatening to take custody. And it was looking like that was going to happen. And so she escaped to Lebanon, and they worked there for two or three years until they got status to come here. And I think... Weirdly enough, he was murdered over a gambling debt like weeks after they left or something like that, after they left uh, Lebanon. So I never got to meet him. But yeah, so that was how they came in the 70s.
0: When did music come into your life?
2: I've always been musical for as long as I can remember. According to my mother, 10 months old, she said I could say 50 words. And so I started singing right away. She said she used to take me to the store like when I was eighteen months old and I would sit in the cart and sing like all four verses of Amazing Grace and all the words and people would be like, Why is that bald baby <laughs> singing all these like lyrics about being a wretch? It's really interesting. <laughs> so I sang and like really early on and then my mom bought a piano when I was two and I immediately started playing. She's from a very musical family. They all are very like naturally gifted. So I just inherited some kind of genetic and, you know, I was around it so much. And honestly, at my church, I think being part of a church where singing was such a huge part of your church life, I think that impacted me as well. I think I probably wouldn't be as musical as I am if I didn't grow up that way. And so I didn't start writing till I was 19, with the exception of one song when I was 16 years old that I wrote to my future husband. Mm-hmm. Like you do <laughs>
0: not someone you were dating, but someone no. that you imagined
2: someone in the ether,
0: someone in the ether, the unicorn there was a Christian song in the eighties that was about that,
2: oh really, yeah. about writing those songs or no, about about
0: the, about the-
2: there's been a it was like a father.
0: As, it was like a father, like yes. and his little daughter, and she painted watercolor. Watercolor ponies was the name of the oh, song. Oh
2: yeah, I think that
1: I
0: remember that. About? And it, it was like somewhere in the world, there's a guy she's oh, gonna marry man. one day. There's and,
2: so many songs like that. Butterfly kisses is kind of like that. It is. And then isn't there one by Rebecca St. James called like I will wait or something?
0: I'm sure there or, is. Or wait for
2: me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm sure there is. I think
2: I was inspired by <laughs> something like that, but it was very, it was very sanctimonious and. Pious song, as you can imagine. And then, yeah, when I was 19, I kind of started writing with more seriousness and more consistency and never really looked back from there, to be honest.
0: So you kind of knew you wanted to be an artist?
2: I didn't until I was 19. But at that point, I kind of got the bug and was like, I want to do this. At that point, I was just starting to leave behind the Plymouth Brethren tradition Mm -hmm. And in my tradition, women couldn't even sing in front of the church for special music or anything. So all of my gifts were like to be used at home to bless my children kind of thing. Not that I don't use them that way now. I do. And it's my favorite way to use it. But that was the only way that I could see myself even using it. You were allowed to play piano to a company, but you weren't allowed to open your mouth, which is a whole other story, which I'm still in therapy dealing with. So the first person that I think I went to in my family to talk to them about the fact that I felt like I was sort of being called to this told me that it would be sinful because it would be like preaching, which would be wrong because I'm a woman. And I immediately thought in that moment, what about Fanny Crosby? Like we sing her songs all the time. And I think that was the first time I really questioned and said, I don't think that's true. I think that's just something we made up. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I think I'm supposed to. I think I have to, honestly.
1: My life
0: What was that road like once you committed to doing it? How did you find your way?
2: I was living in South Florida then because my parents had moved us down there and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was like free rent. I had done half a year of school and it was very expensive. I was trying to go to like a private Christian school down there. I was like I can't afford this. And I think I really want to try music. So I think I'm going to take a year, just give it a shot, like locally and just see what happens. So I worked a job, a few jobs and I started playing out. And I mean, at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to do music. So I was doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, I played at clubs. I played at bars. I did covers and played at restaurants. I had one regular restaurant, two regular restaurant gigs for a while. I played at private parties.
0: Were you playing original stuff or covers? Mostly
2: just standards and covers. Yeah.
0: Like jazz standards?
2: Some jazz standards, but a lot of like I would take modern pop stuff and like rearrange it for that setting. Did a lot of Coldplay, but like very chill, chill vibes, covers. I ended up playing at a bunch of funerals for hire and weddings. And then I stopped doing weddings for hire because I started getting in these situations where I'm like, if I knew that this was the situation, I probably wouldn't be here. This is your fifth husband. I don't know if I should be like... I was just feeling it out. And obviously I played at church. I was at a Baptist church called Grace Fellowship in West Palm Beach, Florida, or that area. And their young adult pastor was like, you should lead worship for this thing we're starting. We're starting a young adult group and I'm going to pastor it. And I'd never led worship before. I didn't even know any worship music really because I didn't grow up with it. We weren't even allowed to listen to that. So I printed out a bunch of, chord charts, you know, and like awkwardly in the foyer of this church, like strummed my way through. And that was where I started to get my footing as like a worship leader. And I started to write songs that might work in that setting. That was 2001, 2002 that I started. And then by like 2008, I'd been there for six years I was like oversaturating my town. I sensed like I'm hitting a ceiling here. And I knew a few people who were in bands that were touring at that point nationally. There was a band called 10th Avenue North who I knew from living down the street from them. And they had just moved here and signed a record deal. And one of them called me and I like vividly remember this conversation. I was standing on the street corner. I was reading a book. He called and he said, my girlfriend is living in Nashville now and her roommate just left. And I just wondered if you thought about coming up here. I was like, I can't. I have this car that I've like, it's totaled, but I'm leasing it. Like, what do I do? I don't have any money and I'm, you know, so... I just felt this feeling though. I was like, I got to go up there. And so I went to the dealership and I was like, here's the deal. How do I get rid of this car? It was like a lemon. Like I got a lemon from the car the dealership somehow. I maintained it and something was always wrong. And then it just like the alternator died. I was like, what am I going to do? And he's like, well, I'll tell you what, if you lease a car from us, you won't owe anything on this car. So I'm like, all right, done. So I like signed a new lease, get rid of this car, quit my job, leave. I just moved. Oh, but before I left, I played like one final hometown show and I put a guitar case out on the end of the stage. And I said, I want to make a record in Nashville. Anything you could give me to help me out would be amazing because this is before Kickstarter existed. And I think I made like four grand that night. And then another two or three came in (coughs) from other people over the next few days. So I packed up and I left. I got here. I made a record. With that money, it's called Firefly. It's not really in circulation anymore. Okay. It had five songs on it. You know, I made it with a producer named Paul Moak, who has done tons of stuff that I loved at that time, like indie folk music and and Philip LaRue. Two weeks later, Sparrow Records called me on the phone. The VP of A&R was like, I want you to showcase for us. I was like, okay, what? Now he told me- now, How
0: many months into being I here had been you?
2: here four or five months at that time. Wow. I did the showcase- and Brad O'Donnell, who I ended up working with at Sparrow Records for a while, told me, I think rightfully, that I was not ready as a songwriter or a performer to do this. And he was like, I think you need to go on the road. I think you need to, you need to watch that a little bit. And like, but I'm really interested. I, I believe in you. I think that you have something really special as a writer. I just think you're not ready for this on the stage yet. And I was like, okay. I ended up signing a publishing deal there, though, at that time. And then through the same friend who had called me to say, like, will you move up here? His name is Mike Donahue, lead singer of 10th Ave. He said, hey, I met this guy. Uh, I think he's the only other Catholic I know in this business. And you guys should know each other. I don't know. Maybe do something like together. I don't know. So we go on this weird friend blind date thing with Mike and Mike's mother, who was in town. And then Matt Marr, who is the guy that he was talking about came. And it was just at the end of the last GMA week I think they ever did. And we met at FIDO in Hillsborough Village. The
0: uh, Gospel Music Association. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. Um, Before the Doves, they used to have that week of like interviews and parties. And I don't think they really do that exactly anymore, but that was the last year they did. So we met up and Matt said, hey, I listened to your EP. And I just think it's tragic that you're working full-time as a nanny. Why don't you just quit your job? and come on the road with me full time. I was like, "Okay." You know, so 6 months after I moved here, I quit my job. I actually hated that. I loved my job. I was like, "I don't know how I can turn this down." It was full-time employment doing basically like background vocals, playing keys, and then every night in the middle of the set, he would have everybody sit down and he'd say, "You know her by now from being up here. This is my friend Audrey. She's going to sing you a few songs." So instead of having me open, which is a gift anyway he sort of was like here i've warmed them up for you wow you know have your moment
0: that's incredible it generous. was
2: really generous yeah. and it launched my career i would say and so i did that for 2 years and then somewhere in the middle of that i signed a deal with sparrow so there's something about it that was like fated to use a very pagan word but i i think that's an accurate word like sort of destined but also it would not have happened without the many human beings who pushed me along and then eventually some of them really sticking their necks out to sort of help make it happen. So it's a really a community story when I think about it.
1: Jesus, the very thought of you, it fills my heart with love, Jesus.
0: One of the things that struck me in my conversation with Audrey was how incredibly raw and open she was about the dark side of her spiritual journey, her struggles, her questions, and the very real pain that can result from these.
2: You know, when I became a Catholic, I was still a fundamentalist. So I think it was equal parts. I was attracted to the liturgy and the tradition and history of it. And I studied it for quite a long time before I decided to do it. So I theologically kind of came in line with a lot of the big things like Eucharist and sacraments and things like that. But also I think I was really excited by the prospect of like more rules. (laughs) I was like, wow, someone finally can tell me like what to do. (laughs) Because I also have a, I've been diagnosed with something called scrupulosity, which is a form of OCD. It's a religious brand of OCD basically. And I didn't know this at the time. But it made me feel better and more secure on the planet and in the galaxy, you know, in the universe to have everything delineated as much as possible. The tradition I was raised in preached that you could have an answer for every question. I was still looking for that. And so, frankly, my motivations in becoming Catholic were mixed. But I'm glad I did it. I think joining myself to the oldest tradition in the world of Christianity has been like medicinal against fundamentalism. And so I think that challenged me and has sent me on a journey of really what I think is the real story of my life, which is healing from fundamentalism, because that has held me back for many years from free and open relationship. The
0: scrupulosity thing interests me.
2: So I have this therapist that I started seeing because she's a trauma therapist. And I started seeing her because approximately one year ago or so, my previously kind of just simmering anxiety levels, which I think a lot of us deal with, you know, really kind of exploded and especially around church and my work as a church musician or as a devotional musician, I guess. So I started having panic attacks when I would go to church and I didn't have any idea why. When I would go out on the road to tour, play a show, having not only unmanageable anxiety and sometimes approaching panic kind of thing, Mm but also develop these like physical tics and twitches that were like in my hands. And I play piano. I was like, I'm sick. Like, this is bad, <laughs> you know? I'm gonna like need to do something about this. I have to intervene. And so I started to see the therapist who my counselor recommended. And that was where she sort of helped me to see that it was an unsustainable fever pitch I was trying to live at as a Christian, that I had been for many years, ritually obsessing over the finest <laughs> details of not only my own conscience, my own sinfulness, but theology and God's character. And it was like, I had spun myself into just a total, a frenzy and it was unsustainable. She was like, have you ever heard of scrupulosity? And it wasn't the first person who had mentioned it to me about myself. Mm-hmm. But it was like the first time I was able to see that I had some kind of sickness going on. It wasn't just that I have a curious mind, which I always thought, oh, I'm just really curious person. I'm, a, I'm an obsessive person, which is true. But I didn't realize that that actually might extend to the level of like a disorder. But it, it really rang true. And so as I started to engage with that, it has lessened considerably. And there are lots of people in history that, you know, Martin Luther is said to have suffered from it. And part of what I think, in addition to his very real vision for what needed to change in the institutional church at that time, in addition to that, I think a lot of that was a little exacerbated by the fact that he was OCD, if that was indeed the case. And so Confession and all of those things that go along with that became torturous experiences for him. I can relate to that so much. Um, Even before I was Catholic, um, I was the kid who would lay awake at night, every single night, praying the salvation prayer hundreds of times, thinking every time I finished it, I would think, I don't think I meant it hard enough. I think I was distracted for like one (laughs) second, you know, while I said the second line. And so I'm going to do it again. It's interesting to read about like famous Christian figures. I think Teresa of Avila or Therese de Lisieux, I can't remember which one, one of those Teresa ladies um, said to have suffered from it. It's a, actually very common I'm finding because as I blog and post about it, I hear from so many people who are like, I thought this was just how it is. And maybe its it isn't, doesn't have to be this way.
0: Yeah, and I wonder too, I worked as a pastor for 15 years and you feel this immense amount of pressure as somebody who's on the platform of like, Well, you're on the platform. You must have it all figured out. You've got it all together. I imagine you experience some of that as an artist who's playing in churches. You know, you show up and people think, oh, like, your music is so pure. You must be so pure. It's
2: so funny because I have these conversations. Now, I'm I'm a recluse on the road, so I don't do a lot of conversing anymore because it was contributing to so much of my anxiety. But when I do... And when I used to do it more and people, some people would come up to me with this look in their eye, like I'm here to have my problem solved. I have finally am meeting the person with the key and I would be so mystified by that. I'm like, how do you think I'm that person? How do you think anyone's that person? But it's definitely not me, you know, but I felt like I would disappoint them if I was either resistant to having this conversation where they're expecting me to some unload some kind of, I don't know, heavenly wisdom or something. Or if I was really honest and said, here's what I really think or feel about that or how I struggle with this. I mean, sometimes it makes people feel less alone, but sometimes it disappoints them if what they want from you is like a key to a lock that they have. So I feel like I've had to get over that fear of like perpetually disappointing people. And really, a lot of that's in my own head, but yeah. some of it's real because you see the look on someone's face and they're like, hmm, I thought you weren't the kind of person who laid awake at night and, you know, wondered if you're just a speck of dust hurling millions of miles an hour through a black hole of space. I'm like, no, that's, that's what I spend most of my time doing. This is really just a side thing uh, for me. <laughs>
0: That's the main career. Yeah. In an interesting way, the themes of her spiritual journey are reflected in her work as an artist. And not just in the songs or the lyrics, but in the way she goes about writing and producing her records and the way that that's changed over the last few years.
2: I feel like I work in this very tenuous balance between the two things, like whim and extreme planning. What usually happens, because now that I, I've left Spare Records after my first two albums with them, they released me, which was a miracle and a gift and not typical. I started producing my own material at that point, starting with a record called Fortunate Fall. And what has happened ever since that point is that I will be hit with an idea that's like so compelling that I'm bowled over and then from there, I'm heavily conceptualizing until I go into the studio. And I usually come into the studio with with all the songs done, with all of them pre-produced, demoed. Sometimes some of the stuff is already done. Like it's all sort of planned. It's all in order. All the songs are already ordered. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I'll get an idea and I People can see do it. It's like it just comes to me and I'm like, yeah. I know what this project is. Typically, that's how I work. And so then with So you work
0: kind of from big concept down to the small, as opposed yes. to like starting with yeah. a batch of songs and going, which ones am Typically, I? Typically, yeah. yeah.
2: Now, at the moment, I'm working on an album that I'm going to record this summer that has been different. I did have a title and an idea come to me, but the rest of it has been like groping around in the dark, trying to figure out what needs to be on it. So I've been writing here and there and with different people and like, going, I think this might fit. I don't know. So it's been different. Why do you think that changed? I have a feeling that it's partially due to my personal growth out of extreme rules-based everything. I think I've always felt very safe and secure in that kind of thing. Makes me feel in control, which I'm not, but I feel like I am. If I have like everything planned out, I still am the kind of person I think this will never change, who playing, like if I have a big trip, I make a packing list a month in advance. It's partially my temperament, but I think as I've come out of that as a spiritual being into, gosh, growing comfortable with the concept that you can't actually know everything and that you won't know everything maybe you will when you die we hope so that there will be some kind of sense you know in all this but it really is more of a hope than a like scientific knowledge of it you know and as I come out of that and into a place where I'm growing more comfortable with not really being sure of some stuff I think my process is changing for me I'm glad I had that for those records. I love how they came out for, you know, Fortunate Fall, Death Be Not Proud, Inheritance were very conceptual and I love them, but I'm kind of enjoying and terrified by doing this differently in a little more of a experimental way. We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. When do you think that record will come out?
2: Hopefully February. Don't hold me to this, but my plan is to call it evergreen because in the midst of all that dealing with trauma, I completely lost faith Lost is not the right word. It was like, it has been absorbed into a black hole, and I'm never going to find it again. And I'm just spinning, you know, hurtling. It was a very disorienting experience.
0: And meanwhile, you're leading worship?
2: Yes, which is largely why I was having on-the-road panic and physical, like, anxiety manifestations is because I felt so lost and confused and was like I'm being duplicitous but I also am not going to walk up on the stage in front of all these people and say I don't believe in anything you know it's just not like pastoral you know I have a right to go through this experience like any other human being but I also have a responsibility and it was just stressful it was so stressful and I mean at this point it's better but not what it was before but that's good that's what it should be, it's changing. And so, evergreen is like a really special word and concept to me because I've always thought of the tree of life as this maple tree or a fruit tree, you know, and all that it was in the story. But I've begun to envision it more like a, a tree that never stops being green, you know, never stops being in season. And so, that's kind of symbolic for me as I rediscover what it means to be a believer.
0: sharing that, first of all, I think a lot of Christians experience that and they just don't know what to do with it. Oh you know, gosh, it's terrifying. Just a, not a safe place to go. You know, I don't feel anything yes. anymore.
2: Especially when it's beyond the point where you're like, I just have a bunch of big questions I want to talk through. Like, you know, I've had those questions since I was five. The place I found myself was not just that I had questions that were hard to answer. That was true. That had always been true. It was getting more apparent, but what really felt like it was happening was that it wasn't up to me. I didn't feel like there was anything I could do to change how very gone I felt. When you're sort of taught God is the pursuer and you don't for years have any sense of how that might be happening, whether that's you know, still small voice or even just like through scripture or, you know, feelings of comfort, like whatever it is, consolation that you are used to as some kind of indication to you that God is pursuing you. When that disappears and it doesn't come back for years, people can tell you all day till they're blue in the face that God is pursuing you. But if you have no, it's hard. And a lot of people don't understand it. And they're going, what do you mean? Like, look at the world, look at nature, look at the scriptures. I'm like, yeah, you don't understand. I look at those things and I feel dead. I feel nothing. I feel antagonistic (laughs) towards it. Like, I've been looking at these trees all my life and thinking, well, God crafted each leaf, you know, but actually it's just cellular tissue. Like I had this whole, you know, it was hard. And I can't say all my big questions are, are answered at all. But I think at the end of the day especially after doing all the therapy I did, I realized that something about me and the bottom of my heart, like I'm a believer even if I don't want to be. So I can't conceive of a universe with no meaning in it. I've tried to. I really did. I read Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and all those people and Christopher Hitchens, and I've tried, and it's not me. That's so funny. I'm not there.
0: Uh, You hear the opposite story so often. Like I tried to be a Christian. It's like you tried to be an atheist and it didn't work.
2: Look, I'm trying to be a Christian, and I don't know if it's working either. But I'm, I'm still here. I think I'm, I'm still here. And well, I think I, trying what, to
0: be. You know, when you talk about like there was nothing, I think it was like Psalm 88. Like it ends with darkness is my only friend. You yeah. know, which should, in the weirdest way, like that should be an incredibly comforting verse, because yeah. it's like, oh, as dark as things get, like. Mm-hmm. My experience is accounted for in the testimony of of the scriptures. And it is
2: comforting to me now. I think when I was growing up, I read those things and did not relate and didn't understand. Too often when someone in our community struggles with similar things, those are not the verses that we throw at them. The verses that we throw at them are, you know, about blessed assurance and about, you know, this hope we have. And like, this is how, you know, like all these different kind of confidence verses. When a lot of times I think what we need people, what people need is to be basically told, like, the thing you're going through is not, it's not unheard of. You're not the first one. And it's not like the emergency it might feel like, like not to belittle what they're suffering, but to say like, Your lack of belief is not sending God into emergency mode up there, you know? If God is real and personal and knowable and knows you and has known every human being, if that's the case, if he cares about it at all, I highly doubt you're freaking him out.
0: Audrey has a pledge music campaign happening right now for her Evergreen album. You can contribute, pre-order the record, the vinyl release, and other cool stuff. Check it all out at audreyassad.com. We'll link it in the show notes.
1: now first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, is hard to know.
0: Today's show was produced by me. It was recorded and edited by TJ Hester, and it was mixed by Mark Owens. Our music today, if you didn't guess, was by Audrey Asab, and the theme song is by Roman Candle. Special thanks to Rick Hoganson, Dan Darling, and Jason Thacker for helping make this interview happen. Also, mark your calendars. Sandra McCracken's new podcast called Steadfast starts on September the 6th, just a few weeks away. You can subscribe to it now in the iTunes Store or Stitcher or Google Play and listen to a preview. While you're in there, you can leave a rating and a review of this show. And of course, you can help us spread the word about our show in social media. So like the original theatrical Batman once said, tell all your friends about us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
1: Every day.